tomorrow. The uh, gospel reading from today, uh, Luke chapter 7, 7 11, that's the only way I can remember it, is uh, it, it's, it's just like the Bible to me. It's, it, it makes me uncomfortable, makes me a little uneasy, because what Luke does in a very simple way, and that's how he writes throughout his whole gospel, is this is what took place. He gives us the facts, and then he moves on. But he writes in this simple way, but in this case, he writes very powerfully in, in what he wants us to see and wants us to know about who Jesus is and what Jesus does and what Jesus will, will, will do in our life. And so he wants to be very clear and very simple in, in, in that. And so we have, uh, as it says, Jesus and uh, a large group of people are going into Nain, little town. Uh, the reason why Jesus is heading up one large crowd of people who no doubt were very boisterous and excited about being with Jesus is the day before, Jesus had healed uh, a centurion's uh, favorite servant. Uh, a centurion was one of the religious, or one of the uh, uh, elite, uh, societal uh, uh, elite of the day. He was one of the one percenters. Uh, very well connected, very well uh, appointed, and uh, probably had a, a big, beautiful house uh, behind the gates. And he sent word to Jesus that he wanted Jesus to heal his, his, favorite, his favorite servant. Now, Jesus is impressed with this. You read on a little bit farther, you find that, uh, that, that this really gets Jesus' attention. He is, he is very impressed with what this man did because the man knew how to get things done. And, uh, and that went a long way with Jesus. And so when he was sent word that the centurion wanted his uh, servant to be healed, Jesus starts going to the man's house. And before he got to the house, the centurion sent friends to Jesus and said, listen, uh, our master is not worthy for you to come into his house. He's not even worthy to come here. But, but he knows if you say the word, his servant will be healed. And so without Jesus seeing this servant, without even seeing the centurion, but just going off the faith of the centurion himself, Jesus heals this man. And it begins to be known around Capernaum what had taken place. Well, Jesus and his disciples are leaving Capernaum and they're on their way to Nain. And uh, there's a large crowd. Well, this large crowd came about because they had seen what happened with Jesus. And, uh, and you know, like, like some of us, we're, we want to see what happens next. So they join in, and there's a big merry bunch of people. That, uh, that's why Luke says there were much people. And, uh, and so there was uh, uh, this great crowd, and they're heading to, to Nain, and they're all excited about what Jesus is going to do next. But then there's another crowd, just, a large, just as large a crowd that is coming out of Nain when Jesus arrives at the city gate of Nain. And they're just as loud as Jesus' group, no doubt, but they're loud because they are they're crying, they're weeping, they're sobbing because of this death. And in verse 12, it says that when He came nigh to the city gate, Luke says, behold, and I know, does anyone use the word behold? Huh? 
I think the King James is the only one that uses behold. And yet it's in the original language. I don't know why the other translations use behold. Behold is a great word. Behold uh, is used many times by Luke because he knows something is about to take place that we need to know about. That He wants our attention here. It's like uh, saying to a preacher, for some of you, I haven't been going two minutes and you're already asleep. It's like saying, wake up. Okay, wake up. <laughs> wake up. And uh, it, it, Luke wants us to see very clearly what, what has taken place. So he says, behold. Behold, look at what is about to take place. And he goes on to say, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother. Now, typically we would read that and we just move right on to the next sentence, the next phrase. But here again, I don't know why none of the translations do this. But Luke writes very specifically because he wants us to see what's about to take place. What Luke actually writes is that a dead man was being carried out and he was the only begotten son of his mother. The only begotten son of his mother. Now what Luke is trying to get us to see that the only begotten son of his mother, the dead only begotten son of his mother, is meeting the only begotten son of the living God. And what Luke wants us to see is this, this great conflict between life and death. And what Jesus has come to do to seek and to save that those who are lost. And so we have, as Luke does, he, he, he sets this up because when the, only, the dead only begotten son of his mother meets the living only begotten son of God, Luke knows that strange and crazy stuff is about to happen. And he wants us to, to, to be focused entirely on what Jesus does. And so he gives us this, this story of this dead man who is being carried out of the city. The only begotten son of his mother. But he's not the only dead person in this crowd. You know, One of my favorite movies is The Sixth Sense. And remember little Cole Sear as he tells Malcolm, he whispers to Malcolm, I see dead people. Well, there's another dead person here. The dead person is, of course, the mother who has just lost her son. Luke even adds this. She was a widow. Which meant that she had lost everything. She had lost absolutely everything. And in the, true, uh, the Jewish tradition, when a person passes away, when a person dies, they must be buried within 24 hours. So in the last few hours, she had lost everything. And she was dead. The first funeral I remember going to as a five-year-old kid, six-year-old kid uh, in Detroit uh, was the funeral of a 14-year-old girl in our church. Uh, Martha who, I, you know, one of the few things I remember at five years old in church is Martha playing the accordion. How many accordion players do you know? You know, 
that you're aware of. And so uh, I remember her, you know, this big old accordion and Martha, Martha playing. But one cold, snowy, icy morning in Detroit, uh, she went to school, and as she was walking up the, up the steps uh, to, to go into the, to the building, that she slipped and fell on the ice and, and hit her head quite hard. But it dazed her, it kind of shook her up a little bit, but she got up and she went on into the school and sat down in, a, in, a, in her desk and put her head down and died. Now, the thing I remember most about that funeral was at visitation the night before and then at, during the whole time of the funeral service the next day was Martha's mother. The wailing, the crying, the, the pain, the, the, it, 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 it's, it was undescribed. It is undescribable. What took, on, what took place. And my mom and dad were, were very close friends with her mom and dad and, and we ate at each other's house for dinner. And I remember the first time we went uh, to their house uh, for dinner, Sunday dinner after church. And as we walked by in Martha's bedroom, uh, I looked in and, and Miss Griffin, she was standing there. When I looked in, she says, I haven't touched a thing. I haven't touched a thing from the day that Martha died. Martha made that bed. I haven't touched the thing. And that's the way it was for the next 10 years. And then 10 years later, they moved a couple blocks from us. And, and I remember going in with my mom and dad over to their house for Sunday dinner. And they're showing us the house. And Miss Griffin walks to a bedroom door and she opened up the door. And I stepped in and it was exactly like it was. She said, this is how Martha's room would be. When they moved Martha's bed, they, she wouldn't allow them to take the sheets off or anything. It, it went like that. That's the way it was. We say, well, you know, that's, that's crazy. But no, that's the pain that she suffered. When I was a pastor in Tennessee, I had a, two kids that came to our church, a brother's sister, who were, who were killed in, a, in an automobile accident. And I remember speaking at that funeral and dealing with the family after that, and you, 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 can't, ima you, you can't imagine, but there, there is no way that you can describe what goes on in, for some of you who have lost a son or a daughter. It's painful. I have a sister who uh, was born two years before me, but lived six months and, and died. And, and uh, my... Uh, my mom has, uh, you know, I guess back then, the 8 by 10 photos and, and frames of the babies. And, you know, there's one of me and my brother and then one of my sister, Sandra. But we all look alike. Because, you know, back then they, they would dress you up and they looked like little dresses. You know, even though you're a baby, you can't walk. But, you know, they look, you all look the same. You know, no wonder we're screwed up, you know. It's, yeah. And, uh, and so, about three years ago, I'm at my mom's, and we're, she liked to always look through her pictures, so I pull out these, uh, these uh, pictures, and I said, Mom, I said, who's who here? And she said, well, this is your brother Phil, and, and this is you. And then she took that one photo and said, 
in, and this is Sandra. When I looked at my mom, she, tears just immediately just filled her eyes, and she begins wiping and, and crying. And, and I thought, here it is, 63 years later, and you don't get over it. This woman was dead. This woman had absolutely no hope left for her. But in verse 13, it says that when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her. All Jesus had to do, He didn't, have to, he didn't, he didn't really know what was going on at that moment. He saw you know, a funeral possession, but, but His eyes locked on this one woman and His heart was filled with compassion. He, was, he, he, he went directly to her. Now, I know that compassion is, uh, is really a cheap word when it comes down to being used by politicians and some preachers and, and anybody that was trying to get money from you. They'll, they'll try to be compassionate and show compassion and tell you how much compassion, how much pain, how much of your pain they feel. But the word compassion is basically the, the best word that we have for what Jesus felt, what Jesus was going through at this time when He saw this woman who had lost her only begotten Son. And yet, it really doesn't convey all that uh, it means. Actually, what Luke says is, and this is, again, the, the way the Middle Easterns talk. When they want to talk about compassion, when they want to talk about feeling your pain, feeling, you know, and, and give you some idea of what, uh, what a person goes through when they show compassion, they have compassion for you. It's actually the word for bowels. Now, that sounds a little crazy, I know. You know, but you know, if you ever read Song of Solomon and uh, the King James, and uh, it says, I heard my beloved at the door and my bowels moved, you know, <laughs> it's in there. Look it up, you know. <laughs> I didn't come up with it. I didn't come up with that one. <laughs> and, uh, but, but that's, that, that's the way, because the, the meaning is that everything inside Jesus, even in intestines, his guts, everything hurt for this woman. Everything went out to this woman because of his compassion. In the, uh, I guess it's the 1979 Book of Common Prayer, this past week, the prayer of the week was that, uh, oh God, you, you uh, declare your almighty power chiefly by showing your mercy and your pity. That's who Jesus is. And what Luke wants us to see is that those places where we hurt and those places that bring tears to our eyes, those, those times when our, our, our eyes are, are filled uh, because, uh, tear, with tears because of the hurt and the pain and the loss that we've, we have. Luke wants us to know that Jesus comes. He comes directly to us. He brings us peace. He... he, 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 he uh, he opens our eyes. He, 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 calms, he calms us. Because that's who Jesus is. His compassion is for us. And because He's drawn to this woman who is uh, oblivious to Jesus, she's silent, she doesn't say a word, Jesus goes to her and the first thing He says is, don't weep. Now that, you know, it's not, it, it seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Uh, I, I know some Christian people who who have lost uh, a, 
children. And uh, they've told me that uh, uh, they were caught up in the emotions of the loss and, and the death of, of their son or their daughter. Uh, as they're crying and weeping, they've had good Christian people say, don't weep, don't cry. Don't cry. After all, they're in heaven. They're in a, in a lot better place. Why would you cry? Why would you, why would you ever want them to come back? And so, unless you're going to um, raise someone from the dead, don't ever tell anybody, don't weep. <laughs> you know? You know, save that for something else. But, but, but don't do it. But don't do it then. But Jesus said, don't weep. And the amazing thing is that it's not going to be too long after this when Jesus stands at the tomb of his friend, Lazarus. And he weeps. He cries too. Even though he knows, what he, he knows what he's going to do, he still weeps. He says, don't weep. And what does he do? Uh, Jesus begins talking to the dead. Just like he'll do to a 12-year-old little girl who has died. Just like he'll do at Lazarus in the not too distant future from now. He speaks to the dead. Why? Because the dead can hear him. They heard him. And Jesus walks over to this casket. Well, it's not a casket, but it's called in the King James, called a beer. It's called beer today. And, and a, a beer is an, an open casket, so to speak, or it is a. a a, uh, a stretcher like uh, a stretcher or a board that would carry the dead people out of the city into the cemetery. But Jesus walks over, and in verse 14, he said, He came and he touched the beer. Now, according to Jewish law, Jewish tradition, when you come in contact with death, whether you touch a dead body or or you touch a beer like this, you become unclean. No one, you can't be around anybody. That you have to go through a purification process. You have to become clean during those seven days. And so, no one has anything to do with you for seven days. But Jesus is so clean. There's no purification for Jesus. He is so clean that he walks over, and he's going to make this dirty thing, the most dirtiest of things clean. And he touches it. It's not just some light, little light tap that he put his hand on the beer. But he grabs it in such a way that the whole funeral procession, procession has to stop. And as he at his stop, he speaks to the dead. He speaks to this man. And he said, young man, I say unto thee, arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And he delivered him to his mother. And then in verse 16 it says, and there came fear on all. Well, yeah. You know, I, uh, when I would do some funerals back when I was pastoring in Tennessee, we lived you know, in Clarksville, Tennessee, but back in the hills and the hollers back there in the back, you know, I'd get asked to do a funeral and, and I've, I've seen some crazy things at funerals. And I want you to know that if I was preaching a funeral and if someone in the congregation suddenly sat up, stood up and said, Hey, Elmer! Elmer, get up and rise! And if Elmer gets up out of the, out of the casket, 
I hope I don't have to knock over a little old lady trying to get out too, but I'm telling you, I'm, I'm running. I'm running because it, it, it is a fearful... It, that kind of stuff doesn't happen. And Luke says that terror came upon all people that, that saw this. They were filled with terror. They were filled with, tear, uh, with fear. But the amazing thing is that calmer heads started to prevail. And he goes on to say, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet has risen up among us and that God hath visited His people. Now, it's a great story. You can't get any better than this. But you know, I still have questions. I don't question the, the truth of this story. I believe exactly the way Luke wrote it. I believe that's what Jesus did, that He brought this young man back to life. One of the reasons why I believe uh, in this story is because the religious leaders of the day that just absolutely hated Jesus, they did everything they could do to discredit Jesus. And one of the ways they did it, because they knew He was raising people from the dead, they said, well, He does His work, or He, does, he gets His power from Beelzebub. He gets it from Satan. That's how He can do those kind of things. But I'm one of those, uh, I'm one of those guys that is... Uh, one of those yeah, but guys. Yeah, you tell me that, but what about this, you know? And I have to be honest, when I read a story like this, I go, you know, that's great. I'm, I'm happy that the, the, the mother got her son back. I'm glad the sorrow has turned to joy. Yeah, that's all good, but what about me? How come I never get a miracle? How come I don't get my daughter back? My son back. How come I don't get those kind of things? It's a great miracle, but you know, what about me? And, and sometimes we ask that question. How come they get it? How come God blesses them? They really don't deserve it. And God doesn't bless me. But those in the crowd that day, they understood. They began to understand what Jesus had done and what was going on because they, they glorified God. They praised Him. As the message puts this verse, they all realized that they were in the place of a holy mystery. That God was at work among them. They were witnesses to a new beginning. They were witnesses to what God was doing and what God continues to do for the last 2,000 years. When Jesus announced that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom of God is here, the kingdom of God is heaven, from that point on, we get, we get little glimpses of the holy mystery. We, we end up in places of the holy mystery. And we see the kingdom of God the way that it will be. The way it should have been in the Garden of Eden. But the way that it will be when, when God renews all things, when Jesus comes with, um, uh, with His great power and His great glory, and there is the, the resurrection of the earth, so to speak, but heaven and earth are brand new. And they join together. What happened to that mother and that son that day in that brief moment will happen to all of us. 
in reading this story, it helps me to, uh, to understand better what goes on even around here because, you know, we do pray for miracles around here. And sometimes we see miracles. And like Chad and Alice and I, you know, they've been twice. I only went once to India, but we saw, you know, you guys, you guys. We've all seen, we've seen these great miracles of God. Things that, things that just blew, blow our minds. And I remember coming back from India and showing my daughter one of the videos of this, this, this kid and Chad, you know, after this happened, I'm crying and Chad says, hey Don, you've got to pray for some more people. You know, we wouldn't even, you know, I couldn't even enjoy it. But, uh, but, uh, but seeing what took place, I, I, I wanted it to happen all the time. I wanted it to be for everyone, but it was just those brief moments. It's the beginning. The beginning of the kingdom of God and what it will be like one day. And this crowd of people, as they began to glorify God and, said, and was saying that God has visited us, that they knew what was taking place. They would have loved a miracle of their own, but they understood that the miracle, the ultimate miracle, will take place sometime in the future. But just seeing the reaction of the crowd has helped me this week to understand a lot of things. One thing is that when, this, when Jesus brought this young man back to life, there wasn't any faith there. There wasn't the faith of his mother. There wasn't any faith coming from his, this dead guy. There was no faith there. But God brought this man to life. But it also helps me understand, I think, one of the most beautiful verses that you read in the Bible in Revelation 21.5. Where someday in the future it says that He who sits on the throne or Jesus Himself will say, Behold! Even Jesus likes the word. Behold! I make all things new. And how does He make all things new? Well, in verse 4 He tells us. John relates to us what had just taken place. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death. When I reread that again this week, I went back to my mom and her wiping the tears out of her eyes one day. God will wipe the tears out of her eyes. One day God will wipe the tears out of your eyes. One day it will all be gone. Whatever has broken you, whatever has destroyed you, whatever has brought tears to your eyes in this life, Jesus said it's all gone. There is no need for tears. No need for pain. Because I've made all things new. As Christians, we don't say, well, I had parents or I had a sister or I had a brother, but they're dead and they're gone on. No, we still continue to have brothers and sisters and moms and dads and aunts and uncles that have gone on before us, we say. Because even though that they're gone, and even though that there is a great hole in our heart today and it's something that will never be filled and and we are reminded every year, maybe at Thanksgiving dinner, where there is an empty chair where someone that we loved always sat. Yet it's not the end for them. 
And I know it's hard and it's difficult, but, but Jesus gives us that hope and that assurance that they are alive today just as they were alive in the past. One of the great things about being an Anglican now, Dee Dee and I would talk about this every now and then when we first started coming to, to St. Andrews, but in the prayers of the people that we'll pray, that we'll pray in just a few moments, where we say that we also bless Thy holy name for all Thy servants departed this life in Thy faith and fear, beseeching Thee to grant them continual uh, uh, continual growth in Thy love and Thy service. And to give us grace so to follow their good example. When we pray those prayers, we're praying for people that are alive. People that still exist. Will exist for eternity. And then when we are led a few minutes later by, uh, by Father Larry, when, when he uh, comes to the point where it says, Therefore with angels and archangels, in all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify Thy glorious name, evermore praising Thee and saying, Holy, Holy, Holy. I don't want to get a little hokey here, but when you say those words today, Holy, 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 with all the company of heaven, listen to the voice and listen for the voice of your mom or your dad or your son or your daughter. What's going on? The Anglican Church wants us to know that we, we worship together with those who have gone on. Until Jesus makes all things new. Until He wipes away the tears from our eyes. We will have those moments like Nain. We will weep but with hope. We will continue to be troubled in our life, but we will not be distressed. We will be perplexed, but not in despair. We will be hurt, but not forsaken. And as Paul says, even though that we've been beaten to the ground, we will never be destroyed. Why is that? It's because we have been visited by one that is greater than any prophet that ever lived. We've been visited by the one who conquered death on the cross in His resurrection. And what He did on the cross, He did for every single one of us. To remove the sting of death. To remove the fear of death. To give us that assurance that we live forevermore. The conqueror of death has came and He had visited us. And we'll say, yeah, that's great stories for 2,000 years ago, but again, being an Anglican, we know that Christ visited us, visits us every single Sunday. And when we come and we kneel at this altar every single Sunday, we know that as Jesus said, whoever eats of my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides with me. And I abide with him. All Luke would say is receive what you've read. Believe what you've read. Receive him into your life. 
and eternal life is yours. True life begins. Let us pray. Now, Father, down deep inside, all of us would have loved to be in that great crowd that day. We'd have loved to be that miracle. And yet 2,000 years later, we see, know the struggles. We weep. We are in pain. We're distressed. And yet, as Jesus went directly to that woman who had lost her only begotten Son, the only begotten Son of God, touched her life changed her life. And all those who saw that day finally began to understand that the kingdom of God was at hand. And the death one day would end, it would be destroyed. So Father, I pray that today that every single one of us that is in this building We'll leave in just a few moments knowing that we have received You because we have believed You. We have believed that You, the One that cleanses, You are the One who conquers death, and You are the One that has given us life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let Your light so shine before all men that they may see Your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven.